Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% a real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, We've started our massive literature review on uh, the causes and treatments of anxiety and depression. Our goal is to assemble over 5,000 disparate sources and hopefully shed a light on uh, all possible treatments for anxiety and depression. Uh, The premise is that if you go to any particular expert, they may have 2%, 3% of what's out there. If we're able to assemble, let's say, 20% of everything out there, I think it'll be a home run. So to find out more about that effort, uh, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is a returning guest I've had a while ago, a very smart guy, Dr. Robert Lustig. He's a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at University of California, San Francisco, uh, director of the weight assessment for teen and child health called the WATCH program at UCFS, UC, UCSF as well. Uh, he's lectured in many different places, uh, done TED Talks. I've heard him on various podcasts. Very, very smart guy when it comes to nutrition and sugar and uh, endocrinology. So, Robert, thanks for coming back. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. You know, for listeners, tell them a bit, a bit about your history and what got you to care about the issues that you're really concerned about, you know, uh, sugar intake, uh, people's health, et cetera. Like what's, what's your journey been like and why do you care about these issues? Well, health, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a physician, so I better care about health. Although I will, I will say about 5% of doctors uh, really sort of don't care about health. They care about other things, maybe the money, maybe the power, but most doctors do care about health. And I've always cared about health and I've always cared about kids' health. However, I became a pediatric endocrinologist to take care of short kids. And what happened over the first 20 years of my career, the short kids got fat on me. And I wasn't planning to study obesity. In fact, I actually went into pediatrics to get away from chronic disease. And that's all I do now. So, you know, it's definitely been sort of a 
surprise to me as to how I ended up in this, uh, certainly through the back door. I also didn't expect to be an advocate. I basically, you know, just followed the data. I went where the data took me. You know, chance favors the prepared mind, and I guess my mind was prepared. When I was in college, I majored in nutritional biochemistry. So when I went to medical school, they told me to throw it all away and just focus on things like calories and my prescription pad. You know, it sort of didn't make sense to me, but, you know, hey, I was paying a tuition bill. And, you know, these were the gurus. These were the, you know, people I was supposed to emulate. So, you know, for the first 20 years of my practice, you know, from 1980 to 2000 or so, I sort of didn't have a clue. And, you know, when an obese kid came in, you know, I sort of said the same thing to them that everyone else did, you know, eat less, exercise more, you know, diet and exercise, gluttony and sloth, you are what you eat, you know, you know, all of which translate to it's your fault, because I didn't have anything more to offer them. However, in 1994, we discovered a hormone called leptin and leptin is a hormone that is made by your fat cell, goes to your brain and tells your brain, hey, you know what? I've got enough energy on board here to be able to burn energy at a normal rate and not worry about getting too low on it. I have enough energy on board to engage in puberty, an expensive metabolic process. I have enough energy to engage in pregnancy. In other words, leptin told your brain about energy sufficiency. And what we realized as soon as leptin was discovered was that obesity was either leptin deficiency or defective leptin signaling. Now, at that time, I was at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and I had a whole bunch of kids who'd survived their brain tumors. But because of the surgery or the radiation, they, after the tumor, they became massively obese. These were kids who were normal weight until the tumor and the therapy, and then became massively obese, and they couldn't do anything to lose weight. Now, this form of obesity had been known since 1901. It was first described by Freelich and Babinski, uh, you know, giants in the field of neurology, and it was called hypothalamic obesity. And I had about 30 of them that I had to take care of and figure out what to do for them. Now, leptin had just been discovered. So the postulate was that these kids couldn't see their leptin, which is true. Well, if they can't see their leptin and I can't fix the problem because I can't fix a brain, like what am I going to do to help them? Well, there's a animal model of hypothalamic obesity where you lesion the hypothalamus with a, you know, an electrode and these animals become massively obese. But we knew that they became massively obese because they started releasing insulin at a very, very rapid rate. And we also knew that cutting the vagus nerve in these animals would stop it. So we postulated that this is what must be downstream of the leptin signal, that because they couldn't see their leptin, their brains thought they were starving. And because their brains thought they were starving, they had to accumulate more fat in order to raise their leptin even higher, except It didn't matter how high their leptin ever went because those neurons were dead. And so this was the vicious cycle. This was the, you know, the breaking of the servo mechanism of adiposity. And these kids would never be able to lose weight because their brain always thought 
that they were starving and their insulin was so high to drive more energy into fat. Well, so like, what do you do about that? So I had in my, you know, armamentarium, a drug that suppresses insulin release. It's called octreotide. Was used, it's used primarily for growth hormones secreting tumors in adults, but I had it available and it also suppresses insulin release. So I said, what if we give octreotide to these kids? So we did an open label study with eight kids and lo and behold, they started losing weight. Hmm. And what's more amazing is that they started exercising spontaneously. One kid became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. These were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos and slept. And the parents would complain to me vehemently that, you know, this was double jeopardy because my kids survived the tumor only to succumb to the therapy. And the kids, you know, when we gave them the medicine, they would say things like, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the clouds since the tumor. And they wanted to exercise. So we did a double blind placebo control trial and we did the exact same thing, except with a placebo control. And we built a quality of life questionnaire into this one. And sure enough, if we got these kids insulin down with the medication, not only did they lose weight, but their energy expenditure improved and they became more active. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So what this proved to me at a very early stage back in 1999, was that the two uh, behaviors that we associate with obesity, gluttony and sloth, you know, too many calories in, too few calories out, were secondary to the biochemical process. That in fact, the problem was the leptin resistance. The problem was the high insulin. And when you fixed the insulin, not only did they eat less, but they exercised more of their own volition. So what you're saying is um, maybe not all of it, but a lot of obesity is driven by biochemical pathways that are awry or. So I I would argue argue that not some of obesity or most of obesity, I would, I would argue that all of obesity is driven by that. And we did this experiment in adults too. And what we found was that 18%, eight out of 44 patients, and then in a double blank placebo control trial, the same thing, responded the same way as the kids, even though they didn't have a brain tumor. And the reason was because their pancreases were over-releasing insulin. And by blocking that with the drug, we were able to reverse the process. Now, that is super cool. 
And, you know, I take credit for that. The question was, all right, 18% of the adult population responded. What about the other 82%? What's wrong with them? All right, because that's where the money is, as it were. And we didn't know that back. So I'm trying to figure out why they have the, you know, why they're obese when they're not over-releasing insulin. It turns out they all have something called insulin resistance. That is, they're not responding to the insulin signal. And because they're not responding to the insulin signal, their pancreases have to make more to make the liver do, do its job. So they have a different disease. And so they wouldn't respond to octreotide because octreotide's not targeted to the right pathology. So the question then was, all right, they have insulin resistance. They're not responding to the insulin signal. How come? So in 2006, I had my second aha moment. I was asked to give a talk at the NIH about what I thought was the most important cause of obesity. And I was, you know stirring and, you know, not sure what I was going to say and, you know, what what was I going to do, say about these 82%, et cetera. And I knew insulin resistance played a role, but like, what's the cause? And I said, wait a second. All right, let me think about this in a different way. What are the diseases that kids today get that they never got before? The answer was type two diabetes and fatty liver disease. Prior to 1980, those two diseases were the diseases of aging. And those two diseases were the diseases of alcohol. Yeah, I remember I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now. I'll never forget the movie, The Goonies. They had this one kid that was not even heavy by today's standards, chunk. And, you know, he, he pulled up his shirt and like, you know, moved his belly around. And But again, back in the 80s, there was like a token fat kid. But now everyone's fat. That's what I've That's noticed right. is the change. That's right. Absolutely. I, you know, was, you know, like, why do kids get the diseases of aging when they're kids? And why do get kids get the diseases of alcohol when they're not drinking alcohol? So I picked up my biochemistry textbook from 1974. And I turned to the page on alcohol and alcohol metabolism. And the next page was fructose, the sweet molecule and sugar. And I looked at it and I went, I looked at the alcohol and I looked at it again. And I looked at the alcohol again. I said, wait a second. These are exactly the same. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so I went to that NIH conference and I said, I think sugar is the reason for the insulin resistance. That is the underlying reason for the obesity and diabetes epidemic. And I explained the similarities and the overlaps between alcohol and sugar, not just in terms of metabolism, but also in terms of the reward system and addiction. And I gave my half hour talk and then there was the bathroom break. And I was you know, answering some questions at the podium, but like people weren't coming back into the room and we were like 45 minutes, you know, it's like, does everybody take that long in the bathroom? I, I had to go to the bathroom. So I, I, I went out and I got mobbed by all these people who wouldn't go back into the room. When they saw me, they said, oh, my God, he's right. He's right. And these were toxicologists. You know, these are PhD toxicologists, you know, at the NIH. And they're going, you have to tell everyone this. I went, really? And I, anyway, I've been talking about it ever since. So, so why the, wouldn't they, why didn't they come back in the room? What was the reason? 
Oh, they were just because they were milling around, basically discussing it amongst themselves. Oh, okay. So it was pretty cool. So that was my second aha. And my third aha moment, which is more recent, which actually wasn't even my aha, it was my colleague's aha. I have three colleagues named Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz that I work with here at UCSF. And Stan uh, is Mr. Anti-Tobacco. He is the biggest thorn in the tobacco industry side there ever was. And he is the one who developed the Tobacco Documents Library at UCSF to basically figure out what the tobacco industry knew and when they knew it. Well, the three of them got hold of a treasure trove of food industry documents and started the Food Industry Documents Library, which is online, you know, and you can find it at the UCSF website. And what they discovered in that tobacco documents library was that sugar industry knew about the problems of sugar back in the 1960s. And they launched a major public relations campaign to exonerate their product. And they paid off two Harvard School of Public Health professors, the chair of the department, Fred Stair, who basically was the founder of the department and is the reason it's the behemoth it is today, and Mark Hegstead, his assistant, who ended up becoming the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And the sugar industry paid them in 1965 the, uh, $6,500, which today would be $50,000, so not chicken feed, to write two articles for the New England Journal of Medicine, exonerating sugar and figuring saturated fat as the cause of heart disease. And the Sugar Association didn't reveal its, uh, its contributions. You know, it, you know, there was a clear conflict of interest, but it was never uh, made, made public. They edited it. They provided uh, uh, information for drafts. They provided references. Basically, you know, they helped write the thing. And, and you know, we never knew that. So it became very clear that the food industry, and in particular, the sugar industry, was doing exactly what tobacco did. And in fact, tobacco learned it from sugar. And we actually have the data to show that the, uh, one of the executives at the Sugar Association, who was a former MIT professor, his name was Robert Hockett, actually went to work for the Tobacco uh, Association back in 1952-53. And he basically explained to them why they needed his um, tactics of subterfuge. And, you know, they've been applying it ever since. So that was the third. That's terrible. So hmm. we now have data on the dark underbelly of the food industry and sort of how we got into this mess. But knowing how we got into this mess also gives us a very clear roadmap for how to get out of it. Well, what is, what is that roadmap? It was so much of a of a cover-up. I mean, and now, you know, unfortunately, the last year and a half, the censorship of science has really gone like full tilt. Indeed. How are we supposed to recover? What do we do? Well, you know, the science is my sword and it's my shield. And the fact is, yes, uh, there's no question that science has been politicized. But the fact is that the science is still the science. Um, we have a population that basically doesn't know science. They didn't learn science. They didn't learn the aspects of critical thinking. And yes, this is a, a huge problem that goes way beyond the obesity epidemic. But ultimately, what we know about chronic disease is that sugar is a primary driver. Ultra-processed food really is the primary driver. And sugar 
you know, people say, wait a second, sugar's energy. Actually not. It's not true. So it is true that if you put sugar in a bomb calorimeter and explode it, you will get four calories per gram. That's true. However, it doesn't really matter what happens in a bomb calorimeter. It happens, what matters is what happens in your cell. And it turns out that your cell has a little factory in it called mitochondria. And those mitochondria generate chemical energy that your cell uses to power its processes. And that uh, uh, is called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. You might've heard of it. It's kind of important. They uh, usually teach it in biology in high school. And it turns out that sugar, that fructose molecule in sugar inhibits three, count them, three separate enzymes that are involved in normal mitochondrial functioning. It inhibits AMP kinase, which is the fuel gauge on the liver cell that tells the liver cell to make more mitochondria. It inhibits ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is necessary in order to start oxidizing fatty acids to create energy. And finally, through its effects on uric acid, it inhibits another enzyme called CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is necessary to shuttle the fat into the mitochondria for burning. In other words, sugar, that fructose molecule, inhibits mitochondrial functioning. Can you name another substance that inhibits mitochondrial functioning so that it causes death? Cyanide. No one would say that cyanide was a food. Cyanide is a poison. Well, guess what? So is sugar for these reasons. And to make it worse, sugar affects the reward center in the same way alcohol does to make us want more. Why do people used to say that, oh, so-and-so's on a sugar high? Like what's, what happens to a person or right. a kid if they consume a bunch of sugar in the short term? Right. So what happens is you eat a cookie, okay? Like a five-year-old eats a cookie and they bounce off walls. So what happens is the cookie gets metabolized, the insulin goes up, the energy ends up in the fat cell. The fat cell makes leptin. The leptin goes up in the blood goes to the brain, activates the sympathetic nervous system to then activate and burn off the excess of what was, you know, versus what was stored. And we have a name for that. It's called fidget. Okay. That's the sugar high. And it's because the servo mechanism between the, the food stuff, the insulin and the leptin and the brain is still all working. That's why you get the sugar high. Now, what happens if an obese five-year-old kid eats a cookie? They're leptin resistant. That's why they're obese. They can't see their leptin. Have you ever seen a sugar high in an obese kid? Doesn't happen. Can't happen. Oh, what do they get? Just they lose energy or what, what has they the just, effect on they're, they're in the pantry looking for more cookies. Hmm, okay. So, so the bottom line is these. So they, don't, they don't get a high, a sugar high. Essentially. They don't get a they sugar get, high. They just, the, the craving continues and it just keeps going and going. That's right. And they don't get that sugar high because their leptin isn't working. If their leptin was working, they would get the sugar high. Okay. Got it. So why is their leptin not working? Because their insulin's high. Why is their insulin high? Because their fat, there's fat in their liver. And why is there fat in the liver? Because of the sugar because that's what the liver does to excess sugar is it turns it into fat. And that's why kids now have a 25%
prevalence of fatty liver disease in this country. And if you look at obese kids, it's 50%. Wow. So 50% of obese kids, even what ages, let's say eight or 10 have significant fat in their livers. Absolutely. What do you think this will do to the average uh, lifetime expectancy of, of, you know, the current generation of kids? It's already going down. It's already going down. How much do you, do you postulate it's going to affect them? It's going to go down very significantly. I mean, it already has. I mean, we are. So there's lifespan and there's health span. Okay. And they're two different phenomena. Okay. Lifespan is, you know, life expectancy, you know, when you're going to die. Health span is when you're going to start needing resources to keep yourself alive. All right. And health span is going down even faster than lifespan. And health span is now 15 years shorter than lifespan. So that means that you are going to use up 95% of the medical resources of your life in the last 15 years of your life, taking care of chronic diseases, all of which could have been avoided had you eaten right. Age does that typically put people at the point where they're going to start using tremendous medical resources, like 65 with an average lifespan of 80. Oh, no, it's already at 40, 45. It's already very, very, very early. All right. I mean, you know, we've got people on dialysis, you know, from chronic kidney disease, from insulin resistance already. The uh, the gurneys in the emergency room are filled with 45-year-olds, you know, who've already, you know, are waiting for their TPA for their heart attacks. So COVID made it worse, of course, but it was already a problem even before then. Okay. Yeah, that's really significant. So an average kid that's uh, obese now and is having all these health problems, I mean, what's the current health span expectancy? What's the current life expectancy? Well, our current life expectancy as a, as a country is 78.4 for women and 74.4 for men. Uh, and that both of those are going down by about 0.1 years each year annually for the last four years. So we've topped out in terms of life expectancy. Other countries are way, are, are still increasing their life expectancy. We're not. And, you know, this is one of the primary reasons why is chronic disease and it's breaking the medical bank. You know, we just can't afford it. So here's the way you have to look at this problem. The food industry in America grosses $1.5 trillion a year. And of that, 650 billion of it is uh, gross profit. So they have a gross profit margin of 45%. The next highest industry is pharma at 21%, 45%, 21%. So no wonder they don't want to fix anything because they are making money hand over fist. Okay. This is their juggernaut. This is their gravy train because they figured out how to get us to eat double what we need. And it's called addiction. And sugar is the vehicle, caffeine too, but mostly sugar. All right. So 650 billion in gross profit. Now, the healthcare industry um, uses up $3.8 trillion a year in the United States. And of that, 75% is chronic metabolic disease. And of that, 75% is uh, totally unnecessary because if we came back down to levels of 1970 before this debacle ever started, we, that's how much we'd be able to recoup is 75% of 75% of $3.8 trillion, which is $2 trillion. Wow. 
those. So what that means is that we are spending triple what the food industry makes cleaning up their mess. That is unsustainable. We can't keep it. And the only way to stop it is to change the food. So within food, is it is it just sugar that's really causing this problem? Or do you think that GMO foods would be, you know, an an added problem or like what else about food? Yeah, yeah. In I mean there are lo- sugar. Well, there are a lot of things about food that are a problem. The other thing that I think is, is as important as the sugar problem is the fiber problem. Now we're supposed to eat anywhere from 25 to 50 grams of fiber per day. Currently, our mean consumption is 12. Now, people think fiber is the stuff you throw in the garbage after you squeeze the fruit. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reason is because the fiber is not for you. The fiber is for your bacteria, for your intestinal microbiome. So we have 10 trillion cells in our body, but we have 100 trillion bacteria in our intestine. Our bacteria outnumber us 10 to 1. Each of us is just really a big bag of bacteria with legs. Those bacteria have to eat something. They have to survive. Now, the question is, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. But the question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? If you do not feed your bacteria, your bacteria will feed on you. They will actually eat, strip the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, denuding them and increasing the risk for irritable bowel syndrome and leaky gut, which ultimately leads to inflammation, and that drives insulin resistance and chronic disease all by itself. Hmm. So the fiber in your food is not for you. It's for your microbiome, but you have to feed your microbiome in order to be healthy. And if you don't feed your microbiome, you will get sick. But we take the fiber out of the food. Why? Because the food industry knows they can't freeze it. I'll prove oh, it, it prevents freezing? Okay, and preservation. Freezing. So uh, I'll prove it to you. Take an orange, put it in your freezer overnight, take it out the next morning, put it on the counter, let it thaw, try to eat it, see what you get. You get mush. Why you get mush? Because the ice crystals macerate the cell wall, let all the water rush in. Hey, food industry knows that. So what do they do? Squeeze it and freeze it. It lasts forever. They have taken a food, an orange, and turned it into a commodity, frozen concentrated orange juice, which they can sell on the commodities exchange because it doesn't go bad. Storable food. That is the definition of commodity. So they figured out how to reduce depreciation and how to make money and how to make, you know, and basically how to make us sick. Mm. It's the common, the, the, the two biggest problems with our food supply are high sugar and low fiber. So what's a high sugar, low fiber diet called? It's called processed food. What's a Mm. low sugar, high fiber diet called? It's called real food. Real food worked for thousands of years. It's only in the last 50 that we've got this problem since we've had processed food. Yeah, and people are saying that, oh, you know, our, our genes have changed, our biology has changed, but how could nope. it have changed 50 years? It's insane. Nope. No, our microbiome has changed, all right? Our insulin resistance has changed. 
But the good news about both of those is you can actually reverse both of those. If you ate real food, okay, your the fat will clear from your liver. Your microbiome will come back to normal. My colleague, Peter Turnbull at UCSF showed that when you add fiber to a, an animal's diet, it the microbiome changes back within two days. Oh, wow. Okay. And the fat can leave your liver in as little as nine days once you get rid of the sugar. So basically, if you ate your, the food that your grandmother ate, you would solve this problem. But you solve it pretty quick. Yeah. And you'd solve it quick. But the problem is that's not what the food industry is selling. Well, have you gotten patients to follow the diet that you're recommending? And, you know, like clinically, how fast do you see change and what do you see? We've studied it and we, that's what we did in our clinic every single day at the UCSF Watch Clinic. Basically, we taught patients, kids and their parents what food is. If you think Cheetos is food, all is lost. All right. That's the, that's the, that's the watershed question. Is Cheetos food? And if they say yes, they're screwed until they understand that Cheetos is not. All right. So we actually, you know, did for all of our patients, what we called a teaching breakfast. So the patients would come in fasting because we were drawing their blood. And so they were hungry. And so they would see the doctor, they get their bloods drawn. They'd uh, you know have a physical exam. They fill out a bunch of forms. And then Six kids and six parents would sit at a communal table narrated by one of our dietitians in both English or Spanish. And we would explain to the patient and the parent why these foods were on that breakfast table. We got a hundred dollar grant every month from Trader Joe's to do this. And we would buy the food and we would basically do this thing called the teaching breakfast. And right. lasted an hour. And at the end of the hour, we basically four things had to happen. Four things. Number one, the parent had to see the kid would eat the food. Number two, the parent had to see the parent would eat the food. Number three, the parent had to see other kids would eat the food because they got other kids at home. And number four, they had to see the bill so that the parent could see they could afford the food. Mm. And if we hit all four of those, if we could make all four of those check marks, we never looked back. And the kids did great. So what what is did did great look like for kids? Like how fast did they respond? And oh, they'll respond. They'll respond. So the big question is, a lot of them are sugar addicted. So mm-hmm. it took about five days for the sugar addiction symptoms to abate, and we mm-hmm. had to explain to the parents that this is this is going to happen, and it's going to happen to you too because yeah. you're probably sugar addicted too. All right. And because if you don't tell them that that's what's going to happen, and then they start feeling, you know, fatigued and tired and irritable and peaked and, you know, and hungry and cravings, you know, they're just going to basically go right back to what they normally do. You have to, it's, this is addiction medicine. We had to basically solve their addiction for them. But once we got over the five day hump and they realized, hey, I'm thinking more clearly. I feel better. I have more energy to be able to do stuff because my insulin is down and now my leptin is working. You know, then they would never they would never go back. So, you know, one thing I'm sure everyone's experienced is it's hard to eat well because you're faced with this choice 3 to 5 to 10 times a day and it gets tiring after a while. You know, you have to choose right, choose right, choose right, but I don't know if you've encountered that clinically if there's just decision fatigue. And the the wearing down of people's wills because of the availability of all the crap food. Yes, absolutely. And it's very easy for people to fall off the wagon 
Um, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, would, would you hire an alcoholic to work in a bar? Well, you know, that's what we're asking all these people to do by walking through the grocery store. Yeah, fair enough. Do you see that any of these trends are changing? Or are they just merely accelerating? What, uh, what do you project well, as, uh, is coming over the next 10 years? So the rate of increase of diabetes and the decrease in health, lifespan and health span continue. However, what we are seeing is that a good one third of the American population now recognizes that sugar is the bad guy. They didn't used to. So in 2011, the International Food Information Council, which is a public relations arm of the food industry, you know, they do a survey every year. And they asked the question back in 2011, what foodstuff most uniquely contributes to weight gain? And only 11% of people back in 2011 said refined carbohydrate and sugar. Pretty much everyone said a calorie is a calorie or they didn't know. Today, that number is 42%, gone up 33%. And the number who say a calorie is a calorie or I don't know has gone down by exactly the same amount. So the education, the education is getting out there. You also see a lot of companies trying to reduce their sugar footprint. So Danon reduced its portfolio, uh, the the amount of sugar in its portfolio by 14%. Uh, Nestle has reduced the amount of sugar in its portfolio by 14%. These are way inadequate, but it shows... They know that there's a problem and they're trying to do something about it. In addition, Coca-Cola um, jettisoned Odwalla, you know, just juice. It juices, yeah. Juice is supposed to be healthy, uh, not so much. Mm-hmm. And PepsiCo has now jettisoned uh, Tropicana and Naked Juice. Why do you think they did that? I don't know. I mean, you know, they, they're writing on I the don't wall. see why they changed their, their tune, but yeah. No, the, 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 they see the handwriting on the wall. They know They know where things are going. So the bottom line is there is a seed change. Now, the problem is it takes a while for seed changes to, you know, sort of over, overcome the population. And, you know, people say, you know, get, they get uh, disappointed and discouraged. I don't. So here's the way to look at it. We're going to have to close with this. Sure. In the last 30 years, there have been four, count them, four cultural tectonic shifts here in America. Four. And I'll name them. Number one. Bicycle helmets and seatbelts. Number two, smoking in public places. Number three, drunk driving. Number four, condoms in bathrooms. 30 years ago, if a legislator stood up in a state house or Congress or parliament or anywhere else and proposed legislation for any one of these four things, they'd have gotten laughed right out of town. Nanny state, liberty interest, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. Today, they're all facts of life. Nobody is belly aching about any of these. Nobody's protesting on, you know, state, uh, you know, uh, capital steps. You know, they're, no, they're protesting about other stuff. But the bottom line is all of these are facts of life. And we've come to accept all of them. How come? What happened? And why did it take 30 years? Answer, we taught the children. The children grew up and they voted. And the naysayers are dead. That's why it's a cultural tectonic shift. And that's why it takes 30 years because it's a generational shift. So we're about eight to nine years into this cultural tectonic shift. It's going to take a while longer, but you already see signs that it's happening. The question is, will we still have a planet? Yeah. You know, that's a different question. All right. But, um, you know, this will take care of itself, but, you know, only because, 
you know, we, the longest journey starts with a single step. And we started that single step about eight, nine years ago. Last question, uh, resources, resources for listeners, where can they go to find out more about you and your work and use TSF? So uh, I have a website, robertlustig.com. My new book, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine is on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and in your local bookstore. Please buy it in your local bookstore because we need to support our local bookstores because bookstores are happiness. I have a very long CV with a lot of papers. If you go to PubMed and you put in Lustig RH, you will get a whole lot of papers. My CV is on my website. Very good. Robert, thank you again for coming back. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.